Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Richard from Numerai to talk about what they're building, decentralized hedge funds, staking protocols, and more. So before we start this episode, I want to just give you an update about the podcast. So you may have noticed... Up until now, we haven't had very many sponsors featured on the podcast. To date, only two episodes have been sponsored. That was the ETH Buenos Aires episode and the ZCon Zero. We think that was probably the right move because it gave us time to figure out our direction and figure out our format. But we want to keep making these episodes and we want to make sure that Zero Knowledge is something truly sustainable and independent. So we've decided to start adding a few sponsored slots into the episodes. Just so you know, we are going to be making sure that any sponsors we bring on join us in the right spirit. We are looking to partner with the groups that are serious about providing value to the community. So if you think your project fits this model, please do get in touch. Or if you want to donate to our podcast directly and support us, there's some ways to do that on our website, zeroknowledge.fm. Lastly, we have some PR people sometimes asking us to do paid interviews. Just FYI, we don't do that. We interview the people we want to interview. So there's really no point in emailing us asking us to do that. That said, if you have ideas for the show or topics, or if you have feedback about this, please get in touch with us. For this episode, our sponsor is the Web3 Foundation. I mentioned last week that we will be attending the Web3 Summit, the event that's happening in Berlin on October 22nd through 24th. We're going to be doing a meetup around the event. So I'm super happy to promote this and to share an update from the Web3 Foundation about it. The foundation has decided to fund ticket reductions. Um, if you're contributing to the ecosystem or if you can't afford the full ticket price, you can apply to have partial or even fully reduced tickets. To find this application form, go to web3summit.com slash tickets and yeah, secure your spot. Um, have a look at the program while you're there. I was looking at it today and it was kind of blowing my mind. Some incredibly good people are going to be there. There's a ton going on. I'm very, very excited. There's also some really cool zero knowledge stuff that I'm looking forward to catching. Frederick and I will be floating around. We may be hosting some things. Um, we will be doing our meetup as mentioned. And so, yeah, I hope to see you there. And thanks again to the Web3 Summit and the Web3 Foundation for supporting our work on the podcast. Now here's our episode with Richard. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast and welcome, Richard. Hi, good to be here. So I guess to start, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Uh, my name is Richard Crabe. I'm the founder of Numerai. Um, I originally came from South Africa um, and came to study in the United States and studied mathematics and economics. And um, then I went back to South Africa uh, to become a quant and then uh, in late 2015, uh, started Numerai. A quant programmer or a quant model creator? A quant model creator, yeah. So working with financial data at an asset management firm to try to use machine learning um, uh, to, make, to make investment decisions. Cool. I never heard of that term before, quant. It's common on Wall Street, uh. not that common in software. <laughs> So maybe you can also tell us a little bit about the journey that Numerai has taken. As I understand it, it's evolved quite a bit as a project. 
Yeah, Numerai um, always started with a kind of like crypto spirit. Um, in 2015, when we launched, um, we started paying our contributors in Bitcoin. And um, this was kind of like a convenience for us. Like we we're trying to pay these data scientists around the world who were modeling our data. Uh, and it was just much easier to do it in Bitcoin. I think for the first week we tried PayPal and that was like enough of a nightmare to uh, to want to switch to something else. And then in a way, because we started paying in Bitcoin, it started almost like being a news event, like, oh, wow, this is hedge fund that paying people in Bitcoin. Um, but it was always kind of part of the plan. Like I'd invested in Ethereum uh, in 2014 and was thinking about uh, how we could maybe create our own token as well. Um, and then in 2016, uh, started thinking about uh, Numeraire, our token, and then we launched that in 2017, and it's become one of the most used tokens out there. Um, people are actually staking it. Um, and the reason it exists is when you're asking people for tips, investment tips, they might as well just give you thousands of them and hope that one of them works. But if you ask someone to stake, it gives them an economic incentive, a negative economic incentive, where it's now if your prediction doesn't work, um, Numerai has the right to destroy your stake. And that small change um, really improves the, the sort of overall viability of being able to crowdsource predictions in this way. So your entry point into blockchain seems to be Bitcoin for payments, but because you were using it, it inevitably brought you closer to the community. And through that, you realized that there was like way more mechanisms you could integrate into this project. Yeah, People um, paying paying with Bitcoin was much easier than anything else. And then suddenly our users started learning about crypto. I mean, we were the first people, some of our users had never had any Bitcoin. Numerai was the way they got into it. Wow. And then some of them never had any Ether or never had heard of an ERC-20 token. I think, I think we announced Numerair when Ether was trading at like $5 or something. It's like really early on. But a lot of our community evolved with us. And the whole crypto boom. That must have your, some of your early users must be very thankful to you. Then some of them, yeah, some of them, are, <laughs> yeah, made uh, millions of dollars. <laughs> well, there's a couple that I know have told me they've made more than a million dollars. Let's take a little step back and uh, maybe just what is Numerai? What do people do to get Bitcoin or Ether or the token? So yeah, Numerai basically solved the problem. Well, the biggest problem, I think, in the hedge fund industry is kind of just how secretive it is. And because it's secretive, every hedge fund has to have their own data sets and do their own research, and no one's collaborating or working together in any way. Numerai did kind of the most counterintuitive thing you could think of in the hedge fund industry, which is what if you could just give away all the data? Um, and that'll typically be a terrible idea because people could just run off with your data and start their own hedge funds. But with Numerai, we figured out a way to obfuscate our data in such a way that people could still model it, but they would have no idea what um, they were modeling. Hmm. And the value of the, the their machine learning model, it would only be valuable on our special data. It was this neat trick to basically allow people to use our data, model it, 
but without knowing what it is. That enabled us to be able to have these thousands of anonymous data scientists around the world modeling our data and submitting their predictions back to us, which we then trade in our long, short global equity hedge fund. Which you should say, we don't trade any crypto. <laughs> like people think we trade crypto. We just, we're just a conventional equity hedge fund with a very unconventional way of making alpha. So, I mean, in a simple example would be maybe taking all the, you know, the closing prices of Microsoft for a month. You send that, like you remove the Microsoft label, send that out, let people train their models on that. And then so they send their predictions back. But of course, if it was just the Microsoft data, you could like figure out, you know, by correlation analysis that it was that. But, uh, you know, presumably you do something more complex than remove the label. Yeah, that's a pretty good uh, example. Removing the labels is definitely part of it. And then you want to make sure that correlations between the labels are also different. And so because they don't know that it, that it is the Microsoft data they're analyzing, they can't go off themselves and buy Microsoft stock. Yeah, they can't go and front run us and start their own hedge funds. They have to submit predictions back to us because those predictions are only really interpretable by us. Are you using any special technology to do the obfuscation? We have tried a lot of things. And in fact, the very first thing I looked at in 2015 was fully homomorphic encryption. And um, that was a very inspiring thing to read about. And in a way, it inspired me to start the company, The just the idea that you could have anybody operating on anything that was encrypted. But then it's very slow. And it's not like a little bit too slow. It's like a billion times too slow. Yeah. Uh, it's really measured in that. Um, so I remember speaking with Dan Benet actually at Stanford and he was like, it's, it's slow, but Richard, it's also not really getting faster. It's not going to really get to where <laughs> you want it to be. So before we launched um, even, I think we switched to to a different mode. And there are basically things between, you know, just obfuscating where say you add pi to every number and fully homomorphic encryption where you have to do a lot of complicated things. There are some things between that uh, that we've used. And you can also even use machine learning itself to make neural nets. You tell a neural net, mess up the data. You tell another one, don't lose the signal. And then they can kind of fight it out. And then they end up producing a data set that has signal, but is also a little bit messed up. So there are things like that we've done as well, Um, but it's kind of evolving thing. And I think we're probably one of the only companies with much knowledge in this, because in most cases, you'd never need to do this. Normally, you're sharing with data with an employee and you have a legal contract and you can be two sigma and you say, well, I'm going to put you in jail if you steal this data. And uh, with Numerai, it's like we have to, you know, have to develop this uh, unique way of of sharing. What is the team of Numerai really made up of? Is Is it like researchers, devs? Like, what is that like? has been a lot of uh, different people, a lot of uh, software developers, especially generalist engineers. Like we had an, a guy who joined us to do machine learning. He was so excited because in his other job, he didn't get to do much machine learning. He was like, so excited to join Numerai to do machine learning. And the first week I was like, actually, I need you to learn Solidity, <laughs> like really quickly, because uh, we're going to make a token. And uh, people who've had that kind of like flexibility, um, have been quite good at Numerai. Um, So it's, yeah, people with a lot of different skill sets. And a lot of the things we're doing are new. We're doing new things in quantitative finance, new things in crypto. And so there's very few people who really have the skills. So we need flexible people. I mean, it's an interesting model because like you, you said, you've worked as a quant yourself. You as a hedge fund 
don't necessarily need to hire quants anymore because you're kind of outsourcing that. Yeah, that's right. All we need to do is frame up the problems. So we create a problem for our user base. You know, they're not figuring out how to make an institutional grade investment strategy by themselves. We are giving them a data set, which is really nice and clean, that all they have to do is the machine learning part. So in a way, they're not really coming up with trading strategies. They're just optimizing our strategy. So inside the company, we need to have something worth optimizing. We don't need as many quants and machine learning people inside the company because that's all the, the whole point is that that happens outside. We actually have this thing inside the company where it's like, we're going to maybe get to 30. By the time we get to 30 employees, we'll never have more employees than that. And we'll actually keep coming down until we have no employees left. Um, <laughs> and then it's totally, uh, you know, decentralized and whatever. So the, the people that are working on these machine learning models on your data, do you pay them like a fixed fee per prediction or do you pay them like a percentage? on the return of their model? Yeah, good question. So the way we, we only pay people who stake, we only pay people who want to put skin in the game. So they stake our token, NMR, and then in a kind of complicated auction mechanism, we determine how much to pay them back. You want it to be that, you know, if you stake a lot, you, c- you can earn more. But if you, if you stake a lot, but you have a kind of average model, someone stakes a little bit, has a very good model, then you want them to be able to earn more. So that's what the auction captures. But we are not paying people based on returns of their models at all. We're paying them based on machine learning metrics, based on the, the predictions they send. So when people are sending predictions, they're not saying Microsoft's going to go up. They're saying Numerai ID 799 has this probability of being a target of one. And target of one might mean stocks are going down or it might mean anything, but it's it's just a target we care about. And so they're measured based on log loss of their predictions on this binary classification problem. So it's sort of like being measured on accuracy of their predictions, but they don't know what they're predicting. Um, so it's definitely not based on returns. Cool. You started to explore these token models I guess, pretty early on in the history of the company. Right around that time, a lot of projects were just opting to do an ICO, and you guys didn't. Why not? Yeah, well, I have been in some ICOs. Like I was in the Ethereum ICO and an Olga ICO, so I don't like, not like against ICOs from an investment perspective. But I think if you're hosting them, it's it's a little bit difficult. What the way we saw it was that Numerai, you know, we our investors were like Union Square Ventures and and Olaf Carlson We, Fred Ursum, all these blockchain people had already invested in us. And we were just trying to build an application with the investment we already had. So we were trying to make Numerair a smart contract application for staking. We decided to have it have our own token so that we could give the token to people who would use it. We gave it to our top users and we already knew, oh, this person had owned a lot of Bitcoin on Numerai. So we knew they were good. So we gave them a lot. And by being able to have this sort of starting condition of the holders of the token be the people who could use it, uh, we end up making the thing that was one of the most used things on Ethereum. So I think that was a good thing. I think there's also bad parts about not doing an ICO that are separate from not having $100 million or whatever we would have had. Uh, it's it's really that it still found a price. Uh, you know, it still was put on exchanges. Bittrex put us on. We didn't apply to Bittrex. It still had, and then it started to have these very, very high prices. And retail investors who are interested in Numerai, you know, started buying it, even though they weren't interested in using it. And so that's a complicated 
dynamic because on the one hand you want to have you know they have freedom to buy it that's 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 great but it also made some tension and i actually think if we had done an ico you know we would have sold them for one dollar or two dollars or something and then in a way you'd have happier people but if you don't do an ico and people really like your project you're almost destined to start high and come down in price so that's that's sort of what i think can happen you know in the same time it's sort of like as a price has gone down you know it's also very correlated with bitcoin and other things but as the price has gone down usage has gone up so it's like inversely correlated which is not what you would expect well it sounds like because you didn't do the sale you would have had there's it's possible that there's some people out there who didn't get to be involved early enough and should be encouraged to get involved but with those high prices they just wouldn't now maybe they will yeah it's uh, it's it's difficult because also the whole nature of the staking is you have to stake the token for like 30 days. If the price is changing a lot, then just the price volatility is like frustrating. It's like, oh, I staked it and I won money, but during that time it went down or it doubled or whatever. Yeah, or it went so, up and then down again and you yeah. missed this. It's a cost of opportunity. Yeah, so it's yeah. quite a lot of cognitive load in a way for our data scientists to have to track the price. There, there is always this tension between sort of token buyers and actual users. And, and I know like a lot of other projects face this difficulty because maybe 98% of their token holders have no interest in using the token ever. And so yeah. they're like trying to find those 2% in their token holders that are actual users. And then, you know, everything else, exactly what you're talking about is just complicating the matters. Yeah. It's strange and it's also often definitely in the short term, there's so many things you can do that aren't good for the long term. There's so much pressure from token holders to do the most short term possible things, but then they're never good ideas. And so there's this permanent kind of like dissatisfaction of like, well, you should you should be doing this because that would help today. And um, very few people thinking long term. So how how did you get to this staking model that you have on Ethereum? I mean, it, you already just described sort of high level. Someone stakes some amount on their prediction, basically. And the more they stake, the more they can make. But was this an obvious thing to you from the start? Or did you experiment to get there? Or like, how did this come about? It was becoming quite bad for Numerai in 2016. The number of spam accounts people were well they would make a thousand accounts and they would submit predictions and different kinds of machine learning models some would get lucky and win money and the users who were very good had worse performance but they weren't getting lucky they actually had really legitimate performance so that was definitely a real business problem you could say okay well you know let's get everybody to uh, connect their facebook accounts and you have to sign up to receive a text message and one time pass and like all this kind of stuff you can do to do identity verification on the internet which is pretty pretty bad but even that they would probably um it would be worth it to try to spam that too so then you think well maybe you can have charge an entry fee maybe you can have people pay to enter the competition in some way but we didn't really want to charge people for anything it's the whole point is to be an open platform and that's where staking is cool it's sort of like a cost it's like a barrier but it's not a cost um, because you're going to get your stake back the best way to do staking is obviously with a token i mean you could tell our users send us a hundred dollars in the mail and we'll keep it for you and we promise we'll destroy it if it sort of like doesn't make any sense uh so the way you do staking on blockchain it's like such a natural thing to do so here you're actually using staking instead of identity it's yeah it's a way to it's a way to stop civil attacks so you know you don't have to tell ethereum your identity but if you want to use it you have to pay gas and so that helps people use it efficiently so 
in this model, like, why did you want to have your own token instead of having the user stake Ether? That's a good question. I mean, at that time, first, not that many people had Ether. So we would have to give people Ether, you know, to get them to stake it or tell them how to buy it or something like that. So in a way, if we said you can, you have to stake Ether, then the starting population of people who are rich in Ether would be the population of people who would be able to use Numerai. And we actually had a ranking of all the people who were good at using Numerai. And so that was a much better starting population to give a token to. So making our own token was much better to get it in the right hands. How did you actually, did you just airdrop it to them? Um, we just, yeah, we kind of like let people have inside of their Numerai accounts because it's just a website. We were already paying people Bitcoin. So you just had like, suddenly you woke up to like a balance in your accounts of this like fake currency that you've never heard of. Um, and then uh, you could withdraw it onto any Ethereum address. Cool. And is it an ERC-20 token? Yeah. Okay. Do you have plans to ever make it an, a non-ERC-20 token? I actually was thinking recently, you know, there's some like, really big blockchain projects that are like maybe maybe a little bit overvalued. And I, was, I, I think maybe some of them might try to bribe us oh. to switch to them. Hmm. Um, because... <laughs> They don't have any applications. <laughs> so you're getting offers. Oh, well, I, let me just say, I, we not have no plans to do that, but I, I, that'd be a funny universe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think I've uh, ever heard of a better reason to have a token. Uh, a lot of the, the reasons to have tokens are sort of like, because why not? Uh, but population control and indeed like selecting your users. And, and like you said, like you don't necessarily want to require your initial users to pay to enter. So if you can just give them the token, then all the better. Do you now distribute tokens still to high-performing users? Like, are you are you watching this and regularly doing this? Now, the only way to earn Numeraire is to stake it. So you sort of have to have it in order to earn it. Uh, we've tried other airdrops, some that were quite successful like we airdropped to a lot of Kaggle users and Kaggle is one of the biggest data science websites and that was quite good for um, quite good for you know getting new people to have Numeraire and use it uh, Kaggle wasn't too happy about it but now it's yeah it's almost anything you do it's, it gets kind of attacked in some way so right now I don't think you could do the airdrop that Numeraire did because everybody would kind of be like oh wow Numeraire is going to do an airdrop let's quickly make accounts and like so the airdrop thing almost like had a window and I, I was more excited about airdrops in the past than I am now are there any are there any projects that are non-blockchain but that are doing something similar in terms of crowdsourcing this type of data? There is a company called Quantopian, um, which is quite big. I think Andreessen Horowitz invested in them. And they've been trying to get people to build quant models and submit predictions to them. And their biggest problem, which they say openly, and they've written even a paper about it, is like 99% of the people who build those models overfit. And they, they've made something that looks good, but wouldn't actually be good. Huh. And it looks good, but even the person who made it would not put money on it. Wow. You said the word overfit. Yeah. So it overfits what already... Overfit kind of means like it looks good in the past, but it's not going to uh. work in the future. That's what happens in most quant research. It's very easy to fool yourself. In a way, quantopian is, is missing uh, staking, I think. That's what really differentiates Numerai. It's much more about machine learning. It's much more about staking. So you mentioned earlier um, when describing Numerai that you guys have these amazing user 
numbers. And it's one of the projects that got more user adoption in the Ethereum ecosystem. Let's talk a little bit about adoption generally. What are you seeing in terms of user adoption on a lot of the projects? It's strange how little adoption there is for how much excitement there is. You would think if you if you were part of the sort of like 10,000 people who, who were in, a, say, the 0x ICO, you'd think you'd see some of those people trade using 0x and have enough incentive to sort of try to observe the friction of downloading MetaMask and making it making a trade. And um, unfortunately, the main thing people look at is the price of tokens. Coin market cap, I'm sure, has more visitors to it than uh, MetaMask, which is the kind of the only way to use blockchain. Wow. Um, so it's a very strange world. Um, so I do think that's a big problem. And, and in a way, it's destined to be this way because Bitcoin, it's like a story of money. And the way you heard about it is because one of your friends made money. And so you have to make money now and you have to get on it, buy Ethereum. And then it just ends up being like a huge financial thing and very, very little usage. I mean, the reason you do tokens is this idea of incentivization and it almost like overshot. Like it just, yeah. it got so many people excited, but it was like, yeah, just sort of went too far on that side and not enough on the, on the mechanism side. Yeah. And that's where you have, I have some sympathy for the regulators, um, where if they can see that something is worth a billion dollars, and they can see that it's just copy paste of the ERC20 blueprint, it's got no alterations, and it can't do anything. It actually is a token which cannot do anything and is designed to not do anything except the transfer function, uh, which is for trading um, and moving it around. And and that's very sad to me. And I think it's very bad because these things having their prices change every day, that doesn't represent economic activity. The price of Tesla going up or Apple, it's like it's like a sign. Okay, cool. Things are mm. going well. And and then this sort of like Tron going up or down is sort of like it's like digging holes and and, and filling them in again. It's just <laughs> nothing nothing is happening. It's pure yeah. Twitter buzz, Reddit score. Yeah. In a way, though, I mean, stock market prices have always also fluctuated based on non-tangible things. This is just maybe the extension of that. Yeah. Well, at least the, they have companies behind them. And at least those companies are doing some, some real economic activity. Some aren't. There were some companies like Enron and whatever. <laughs> um, but I do think, yeah, it's, it's sad to see people being excited about prices going up when there's no subsequent uh, imp increase in usage. And I do think there's always the argument of, well, it's early, it's, you know, it's 9098 or 97 on the internet or whatever. It's like, yeah, there were like tens of millions of internet users by then. Now there's like nine Ethereum users. <laughs> and all of them are numerai. <laughs> that's that's why I always say that we're actually not in the 90s. We're more like in the 70s or oh, 60s wow. or something. But um, how much of the, like, one thing for sure, I mean, is that, and it's an odd thing that there's so much hype and so little usage. But, I mean, if we just look at, you know, why isn't there more usage? Is it because the apps aren't there, because the UX is bad, or because it's just too hard to understand or like there's obviously something blocking the usage i almost wonder if it's like the story that's been told is wrong i think yeah i think well one thing i think from you can learn from numerai is that our users are actually extremely technical data scientists and they really understand ethereum and stuff because they've been using it they've been like introduced to it for a long time and they're using it for this very strange purpose like 
to basically signal confidence in their predictions and help prevent a civil attack on Numerai. So it's this very niche thing. And then you have other applications that somehow, oh, it's a consumer thing. It's for everybody. Everybody should be excited about it. Should you really be excited about 0x's token if you're just a person? Maybe you can be excited about it if you are yourself really excited about governing the protocol. But I don't know. I don't understand a lot of the enthusiasm. I think a a big part of the UX problem is also what you were saying about MetaMask. That's not how we use apps outside of this space. If I want to use Telegram, I'm not downloading some completely arbitrary third-party program so that I can use Telegram. Like, I download Telegram. And, uh, like, in the blockchain space, what I think will have to happen to for like a normal user a normal consumer app to actually be popular is i download their app and it embeds like a light client and i get everything out of the box with that i also think one of the things about the numerai case is like it's a niche topic where it integrated nicely whereas i think a lot of these other ones you just have topics that are important and things that should be fixed but it doesn't they don't integrate very nicely I have actually another question about Numerai and maybe a part that I didn't quite understand. After the information's been generated and the models have been developed, you're not using this in any way to invest back into crypto assets or anything, are you? No, we don't invest in crypto. Uh, We invest in equities. You can't really have a crypto hedge fund where the hedge emphasis on the hedge part because you can't really short. So most crypto funds are more like VC investments in crypto tokens. Aren't there projects that are actually coming out where you can short? Well, you can, I mean, you can short on like these freaky exchanges that say you can short, but you're taking their counterparty risk and it's not really, yeah, it's not well developed enough to want to put money there. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about this new project that was just announced recently. Erasure. What is Erasure? Erasure is a generalization of Numeraire. We have shown that staking on predictions is a great way to assess the quality of the predictions. If someone is staking a lot, then it's good. What if you could do that for everything? So Numeraire, all we do is let people use our own data, model it, and stake it with NMR. But what if we wanted them to give any data? So imagine they had their own data or their own predictions built however they want, then could they send those to us? So could they come to our website and say, I think Apple's going to go up. I think Google's going to go up. I think that right now we would never trust anybody just telling us, sending us an email. Hey, I have all these predictions. We just delete the email. But you might trust someone who's like, I have made all these predictions over time. I've put every prediction into the blockchain. So it's completely verifiable. And I've thrown a huge stake on these predictions. And that is what Erasure is. It's a way to build a reputation, build a track record by submitting predictions to the protocol and anybody can buy those predictions. So it's like a decentralized marketplace for predictions. And this is really different from what you have currently. What, like, Is it because you're opening it up? Is it because you can now access this? The trick is that um, Numeraire, the NMR token, is for Numerai. And we're going to make it for everybody. It's going to become the native token of this protocol. Numerai has been incubating Erasure, proving it, having our users use it. 
And now it's not just going to be between us and our data scientists. It's going to be between any data provider and any hedge fund in the world. So Numerare will become the token for the entire hedge fund industry. You'll be able to see all these prediction feeds, see how accurate they are with certainty and have them be staked. And any hedge fund is going to want to buy those predictions because we know that people who stake on predictions are good. So are you going to move your own like infrastructure and everything that you do to Erasure like build build your all your own stuff on top of Erasure as well? Yeah, Numerai is just a special case of Erasure. The different parameters you can choose on Erasure, you know, Numerai chooses some of the simplest ones, but we will also switch to running on the Erasure protocol uh, once it's once it goes live. NMR is it sort of sucks in a way because you have people holding it and it's it's connected to Numerai. And so they ask us things like, how's the hedge fund doing? And we're like, we can't tell you. It's, uh, it's against the law for us to, you know, be seen to be promoting our fund. And so people have this token and, and it's like connected to this company in some way, but the company never says anything. And what's going to be great about Erasure is it's decentralized. Everything on it will be public. And so you can see, wow, Two Sigma just bought a feed. Quantopian user started putting their predictions onto Erasure and everybody will be able to see how successful it is. And that's, that's much more like the spirit of decentralization and what's going on. Numerai has been amazing at getting usage and proving that something can work, but it is centralized. And that's why this protocol part of it needs to be decentralized in Erasure. Who are the users exactly of Erasure? I think they will definitely be a lot of Numerai users who want to use it. But I think it could be all kinds of different things. You mentioned hedge funds. Uh, yeah, new hedge fund. Uh, other hedge funds are scrambling to buy data. They are looking at all kinds of alternative data sources, talking to companies, social media companies like Twitter maybe, and others where they're trying to trying to get as much data into their trades as possible. But if there were one place where people could just throw their data and stake it and it's all standardized, then that would be like a dream for a hedge fund. And that's why we were making it, you know, to, to be users of it ourselves, but also uh, to let anybody use it. One of the concepts that has come out with Erasure is this proof of existence. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, proof of existence is one of the first non-money applications of blockchain. It was built on the Bitcoin protocol, and it was basically a way to timestamp a document. You take a document, you stick it in Bitcoin, then you stick it in like a block. Then no one can ever like dispute that you had that document and that you put it into that block and because no one can go back in time. But if you were to say, well, I promise I, I had this information, no one would trust you. They would just be like, well, we can't verify that you really had it. And so using a blockchain is a really neat way to create point in time data. And that's what you really need for a prediction. Because imagine I told you I've made thousands of predictions and I'm always right. You wouldn't believe me. But if I say I've made thousands of predictions, I've been right some of the time, and you can see in the blockchain every time I made a prediction. Okay. That's a, and that's a very important thing. Yeah, with a timestamp. Yeah. So a, a funny sort of uh, related, in a lifelong time ago, I was... Uh, designer and uh was working with like website designs there was a discussion on like how you prove that you came up with like a logo and that you actually own the copyright to it and so the advice i got 15 20 years ago was print the logo post it to yourself 
then the government has a timestamp on the letter <laughs> yes. that proves Whoa. the time of your like creation of this logo. Exactly. So uh, That's a amazing. modern version of that is uploading it to the blockchain. <laughs> Proto blockchain proof of existence. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and it's an important problem, right? And it's so important for predictions too, where it's like we really need to know you made the prediction before the event happened. Yeah. So one of the things that um is sort of unique about this project from what I understand is that you're a blockchain project but when you talk about staking you're not talking about consensus level staking this is staking on something outside of the blockchain What do you mean by consensus level like proof of stake kind yeah. of staking yeah I think we, when we hear about staking when we talk about staking it tends to be consensus level staking Is this also something you've explored and is there any connection between those two types of of research even Well it's sort of related um Vitalik talks about the idea of like a security margin. That's sort of how you can think about this. With staking, you have to w worry about, you know, well, how how do you lose the stake? And under what conditions is a stake burned? The 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 research around that is important. But the trick with the ratio actually is that we don't we kind of sidestep it in a way. We just say if the buyer of a predictions feed on a ratio is unhappy, they can destroy the stake for whatever reason. Because you might want to say something like, well, If the predictions go below a certain accuracy, let's make a, a bunch of validators that are going to go and check is how accurate is the prediction, and then they have a vote and they decide who you know whether some stake gets burned. It's like no, no one wants to do that. <laughs> Instead, you just make it discretionary. You just say the minute you buy something on Erasure, you have the right to burn the guy's stake, and that's a nice way to get around all the problems of needing an oracle. Or needing a group of validators because those things can be nice in theory, but I just don't think that's what anybody wants to do. But to be clear, they can't uh, burn that stake for free. They have to like pay something on their own. I assume. yeah, they have to grief. I think in proof of stake, there's concept of griefing. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with it. But you have to burn some of your own token to burn theirs, and that's in a way, to prevent a civil attack of, of you griefing. Um, so you need to be some kind of cost uh, for you to burn. And a lot of people think, well, it's completely irrational. Like if you have someone sending you bad predictions and you decide to grief, you're destroying some of your own token to destroy theirs. Why is that a good idea? Well, it's a repeated game. The guy's going to send you his next prediction and maybe that next prediction is going to be a lot better because um, he now knows you're prepared to grief him if he makes a mistake. In the ultimatum game, I think it's called, um, you have to be irrational in, in, in one game to ever do it. But if you are going to play a lot and you are going to build a reputation, then it is rational to grief. So I think people are going to use it and it's going to work perfectly to get the incentive alignment hmm. but you're not doing a lot of research into like consensus level proof of stake no. i'm just wondering because i yeah i wonder if some of the findings that you have will be like useful for those proof of stake building models i don't know i think so i mean it, the problem with proof of stake and a lot of the research is that's being done is it's all very theoretical like we d really don't know much of how this will actually play out Like you say, there there's the concept of like a, a single play game versus repeated games, and that completely changes the game theory and how you have to design things. We always assume that sort of proof of stake and validatorship and like running a validator node is a repeated game, 
But maybe it's not. Maybe if you get slashed at one point, that person is just going to go, oh, well, fuck this, I lost money and leave the system. You know, we don't really know. <laughs> and so having some form of empirical evidence uh, of any sort of say, staking system, I think, is always good. Yeah, I think the trick also with Erasure is we let the seller of a prediction feed decide on the griefing factor themselves. That sounds kind of trivial, like, okay, we let them decide themselves. But it means there can be a market. Um, a market will form and there'll be market forces that bring people's griefing factors to a normal level. So one person might say, you can destroy $1 to destroy three of mine. Another person say $1 to 10 of mine. And then people might only buy from the guy who's offering one to 10. It's like a signal. You have two factors there. You have both what they stake as a confidence indicator and their ratio of their like confidence indicator. Exactly. And so uh, I, as a hedge fund manager, I'd be more inclined to, to buy the, the one to 10 one. And, and, and you can kind of rely on the market to make that happen. And that's what's nice about a, a marketplace where it's dynamic. Then people will, people will over time come up with whatever the right griefing factor is given, that, given their own predictive accuracy. Cool. We touched very briefly on the concept of transparency and sort of how these marketplaces operate, but um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about transparency. Uh, you, you, know, you mentioned that as a hedge fund, you're not allowed to say what you're working on or like how, how you're doing. And you're not allowed, allowed to market, but with Razor, I assume this will be a bit different. A lot of there's a lot of emphasis on blockchain projects about transparency, and I think Aragon have been one one project that have really tried to lead this. You know, every time that someone um, uses the money that they have from the ICO, they kind of say what it what it was used for and whatever, and they sort of doing all this voluntarily, right? Like they they've decided that it's ethically the right thing to do to be transparent. Numeri, we're a hedge fund, and so we're regulated, and there's a lot of things we can't tell the public, and that's strange because. Because we have a token. So we've had to be much more careful about how to use social media. I mean, look at what happened to Elon and lots of other things like that. So we yeah, have to be extra careful. What I really like about Erasure is we're kind of giving up control of NMR. It is no longer going to be the token for Numeri. And it'll be in the class of Ethereum in terms of decentralized. It will be like, yeah, Richard started Numeri, but he's no longer like, you know, in he's not in charge of erasure. It's decentralized. No one's in charge of it. So I really like that trajectory. We have a really good plan to make it to make it be like that. And there's something we haven't ever talked about, which is could you make NMR also a kind of governance token for erasure? We don't talk about it because governance is difficult, uh, but I do think there's something interesting that you could do once it's uh, fully decentralized and Numeri kind of throws away our key as as the controller of it. Well, I was I was going to mention this before, but I, I sort of uh, skipped over it. But if you combine prediction with governance, you end up at futarchy. <laughs> oh, the end game. <laughs> um, it's kind of that's a. It's interesting. People have said, um, you know, Joey Krug at Augur. He's been one of our investors and advisors since the early days, and. He helped write the Numerare white paper even. And Augur is a prediction market, right? Mm -hmm. And Ratio is a predictions marketplace. <laughs> and it's like, how are the, these things might have something to do with each other uh, in the future. Interesting. Cool. Well, on that note, I want to say um, thanks so much for joining us and chatting with us today. Yeah. 
Thank you. It was awesome. It was really fun. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>